Matthew chapter 20. We're going to unpack this parable together this morning, Matthew chapter 20. Now, I remember as a kid, or not as a kid, as a, as a man struggling, when I heard my mother express her deep anger with God. Never forget it. Shocked me. What? My mom's saying that? Well, she did, and did for a while. You see, my mom had come to know the Lord when she was just a teen. And uh, she had served the Lord as a uh, church clerk, church librarian, in the choir forever, it seemed. She was a Sunday school teacher, a Wednesday night club teacher, VBS teacher, uh, children's church teacher, you, you go on and on. She had served the Lord 64 years. And what, in her, what was her payment in her mind from the living God for all these years of service? The death of my father. And I remember that she saw God as being very cruel to her, very unfair to her, and she was mad because she really believed that God owed her better than what she got. Ever been there? Ever thought to yourself, hey, God, God, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve this. Hey, hey, haven't I served you for umpteen number of years? I've been faithful in giving. I've talked about you. I've walked with you faithfully. I've opened your word. I've lived for you sacrificially. And then I received from your hand cancer. And, what, what, then my, my, and I watched my family fall apart. I received from your hand the loss of my job. Where am I going to get my income? Um, death suddenly comes knocking, upheaval. How can this be? How can this be? God, haven't I earned a little grace and kindness by this point in my life? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know about you, but we all kind of believe that there really isn't anything for free in this world. Not really. I mean, everything you get, you've earned in some measure. You give a little to get a little is the way most people live. And we aren't really comfortable when we get something free from somebody because immediately we think, oh, now I owe them. I don't dare go to their house next time without bringing a plant or a loaf or a box of chocolates. I got I to gotta do that, you know, to keep up. <laughs> but is, is that the way the kingdom of heaven works? Is it? Does God's kingdom work that way? Well, we're going to see from this parable this morning that the kingdom of heaven operates on a very different set of rules than the ones that we tend to hold to and live by. In fact, the operating principle of God's kingdom is expressed twice by the Lord Jesus. It bookends this parable. Head down to verse 30 in chapter 19. Here's the first time we hear it. Chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. And then he tells the story and he ends it. Verse 16, chapter 20, Jesus says it again, but now he reverses the order. He says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And so I want to unpack this this morning, and we're going to do it in a number of ways. First thing we're going to do is look at the context, the context of this parable. <coughs> now, as you and I both know, that when 
the gospel writers wrote their gospels, and they didn't just reach into a bag and whatever story they pulled out, that's, that was next. No, they were very deliberate in the way in which they formed their gospel as the Spirit of God led them. And so before Matthew places this parable in his gospel, he gives us the context, what was going on before and after, that helps us to understand its emphasis and a reason for being. I want you to notice in chapter 19, you've got in verse 16 this rich young ruler that shows up, and he's got a question for Jesus. Here's his question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, right away, you clue in that this rich young ruler really did believe in his heart that heaven was something he had to earn. And he had to earn it by his good works. And he didn't want to miss out on the most important thing that he needed to do to gain eternal life. You see, life for him was all about what must I do to get? And Jesus sunk his ship, didn't he? Verse 21, Jesus in reply to this guy, who obviously is loaded, and he believes he has done every commandment and done them perfectly in his mind, Jesus says to this fellow in verse 21, all right, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Well, wow, this guy, this guy gasped for breath at this point. It's the last thing you wanted to do. And we hear him in verse 22 going away sad because he had great wealth. You see, in his mind, for sure he was first because he had been obeying God. And he no doubt had been giving to God because in in these days, you see, the wealthy really did believe they could buy their way into heaven by tithing. They really did believe that. That was an underlying belief. And they really did believe that the more they gave, the more God would reward them. And so he, had, he thought he had an absolute in. Not only am I wealthy, but I've been obedient. So I'm first. And Jesus collapses that idea. Well, the disciples are listening in. And they hear the Lord Jesus then say this, which blew their minds in verse 23. Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the disciples looked around at themselves and said, well, I don't know about you guys, but I got nothing. I'm broke. And so they then say to Jesus, well then, who then can be saved? If the rich can't make it, woo, what chance have we? Well, again, the Lord Jesus replies in verse 26, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Well, Peter chimes in next. I mean, he's the spokesman, and his ears perk up with what Jesus has just said. And so Peter says to the Lord Jesus in 27, we have left everything, Jesus, to follow you. And then notice his next statement. What then will there be for us? You see, in his mind... They had to be first before God because they were the first 
disciples to follow Jesus, and they were the first disciples to give up everything to follow Jesus. So therefore, God must have something special just for them. Haven't they earned something from God? We've done all this. And it's therefore, if the rich young ruler isn't first, then we've got to be first because he rejected Jesus and we haven't. So surely, God, there's something in the works for us. What is it? Well, Jesus, again, replies, and we'll get to this in a minute, with a parable to answer what Peter believes to be so. But before that happens, I find it very interesting that this, this uh, faulty thinking continues. And it shows up a little further in the text in chapter 20. Now we got the mother of the sons of Zebedee showing up. Look at this in verse 20. And she kneels down, very nice, and has a favor to ask of Jesus. Here's the favor. She says in verse 21, would you grant that one of these two sons of mine might sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom? I mean, in her mind, surely my sons who have followed you all these years, given up so much for you, I mean, don't you owe them, Jesus? Wouldn't she be so nice to set them up as being big shots in your kingdom? Haven't they earned that? Aren't they worthy subjects of being being at the right hand and the left hand in your kingdom? You know, your advisors almost equal with, well, we see the fallacy of the thinking here in this mother's mind and what she believed her sons, in fact, had earned before God, to which Jesus replies. Now listen to his reply in verse 26. Not so. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and who wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's back at chapter 19 and 30. In chapter 20 and verse 16, he just restates it, repackages. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And, it, it, and it's, you see, in their minds, God owed them. God owed them. They had, they had followed God, so by this point, in all their sacrificing for him, wasn't God obligated to give them back something that they had already given him in return? was the thinking of the day. Well, I find it very telling that Matthew ends this context with this snapshot of two blind men showing up at the end of verse 20. Two fellows who are blind show up, and they have a request of Jesus, which is repeated twice, and their request is this in verse 30. They say to Jesus, here, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And I believe the whole point of why Peter places this here is to point out that the disciples were just as blind spiritually as these men were blind physically. That they were unable to see the true nature of the kingdom of God until God opened their eyes, until God had mercy on them in the text. And so... Let me come back to it. Does God owe us anything for life well lived for Jesus? Does God owe us for following his son? Does God owe you for years of tithing and serving and witnessing and being faithful to him? 
Do you get more if you serve him longer? And do we all get into the kingdom the same way? Well, Jesus now begins to answer this in the content of the story. He now tells a parable against the context that we have just pointed out in chapter 19 and 20. And the story is designed to correct the rich young, par- rich young ruler's thinking, and it's designed to correct the disciples' thinking and Peter's thinking and the mother of Zebedee's thinking. It's to correct them and it state the truth. The truth is, Jesus does tell them in verse 28, yes, there is something special for you. He does say this, but it's also given to anyone who would sacrifice all things for the sake of Christ. He, de- he says in verse 29, and everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or children, or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So not only do they get that, but all of us who follow Christ get eternal life. It's not a reward, it's an inheritance according to the text. And so now Jesus, to explain this, moves us into a parable. And here's what he tells them. Here's the story. There is a man who owns a large vineyard. And the owner needed workers to bring the harvest in. And so, as was custom in, the, in this day, he went to the local uh, gate, town gate, to find workers. And he arrives at 6 o'clock in the morning. You see, the average work day uh, in this day was from 6 in the morning to 6 in the, in the evening, 12-hour shift. And so he gets there at 6, and he hires the first group of men. And they agree that they will be paid a denarius for their good work. And again, that was standard of the day. That was the standard pay, a denarius for 12 hours of work. And then the story goes on to tell us that the landowner went back again at nine, and then 12, and then three, and even at five o'clock in the afternoon to hire more workers. And uh, even at the 11th hour, he was bringing them in. And that gives us a pretty good indication that there must have been quite, he must have had a large harvest, don't you think? to need that many workers to, to harvest his crop. Well, the end of the day arrived in verse 8, and the owner told the foreman, all right, pay the fellas, but I want you to pay the fellas that were hired last, first. And so they all line up, and uh, lo and behold, the, folk, the guys that were hired last get a denarius, one hour's work. Now there's a deal. They get a full day's pay for a single hour of work. Well, when the fellows who were hired at six, who'd worked the 12 hours, saw this, they thought, ha ha, we got a windfall. Woo, we're gonna get 12 denarii. I'll tell you, wait till I get home and tell the wife, look at this pile of money. Woo, so they get to the front of the line and what do they get? A single denarius. And you can, you, huh? What? Ha, <laughs> okay, good joke. Appreciate it. Where's the other 11? Well, because we, we, we know from the text, they start complaining. This is an injustice in their minds. I've gotten cheated. What do you mean this is it? And we have the, the account of these fellows grumbling to the landowner, and here's what they say. Hey, 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 these men who were hired last worked only one hour. 
and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now, yeah, on the surface, this looks pretty unfair, doesn't it? You get the hair on the back of your head up too to pay somebody who's worked one hour the same as a fellow who's worked 12 hours, just looks wrong, looks wrong. And add insult to injury, this first group also had to work in the hottest part of the day and had done the bulk of the work in contrast to this last group hired for just an hour, frankly, in the coolest part of the day. So this whole thing looks like an injustice. And so how do you resolve this inconsistency in our minds that is, is uh, told in this parable. Well, let's have a look at the concluding remarks. You got the context. You got the content of the story. All right, let's, let's hear what Jesus says as he now wraps this up for us in verses 13 to 16. Now, the first thing you got to remember is got to go back to verse 1 of chapter 20 and hear the first statement from Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like. That's so critical to hear that. Because now we understand immediately that we aren't talking about world economics. We aren't talking about how the world defines justice. We're talking here about kingdom economics and its rule of justice. The spiritual economics of the kingdom of God is set by God's grace. And so what this parable does is it aims squarely at our understanding of who God is and the distribution of his gifts in his kingdom. And so what you have a picture of here is the generosity of God that absolutely transcends our idea of fairness each and every time. That's what you're, you're given a picture of. And what I think is helpful in interpreting this parable is to realize that since this is a kingdom parable, the landowner has to be God. That's God. And the workers in the vineyard are citizens of God's kingdom. And the work they're doing is gospel work. They're bringing in the harvest. They're bringing in souls, if you wish, into the kingdom of God. And the payment that everybody gets who works in, the, in God's vineyard, which is an equal pay, is a denarius, or in spiritual terms, it's eternal life, which the rich young ruler flatly said no to, and the disciples fully received. And so the lesson being taught here, I think, is simply this. God's saving grace towards mankind is both surprising, sovereign, and generous. So don't grumble. Don't grumble at how God chooses to dispense his grace and to whom he places his grace upon. Because we must never, ever, 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 ever forget that our entrance, your entrance, my participation, your participation in God's kingdom is all grace. Period. See, there's three mistakes we can we must avoid in regards to God's grace. Three mistakes that people make. One is they think they can earn it. They're convinced they can earn it. You know, oh yeah, yeah, you know what? If, if my good deeds just outweigh my bad deeds, then when I arrive in heaven, God's obligated to let me in. I mean, we've all heard this. 
I, I remember so clearly, I was telling the nine o'clock crew uh, when we did our walking sticks in the church I was at previous to here, we gave out about 5,000. When we, we got rid of our pews and uh, had chairs just like you folks have got, and what we did is we sawed them all up and made walking sticks. But to get one, you had to answer a question. So we had a great big sign that said, answer a single question, get a walking stick. Well, I'll tell you, we had lines of people. They were lined up waiting for these walking sticks. Here's the question. It was simply this. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, we were setting them up. We were. Our whole intention was to share the gospel with this crew, and we did. And you can probably guess what we heard 99.9% of the time. Well, I'm a good person. That's why God will let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm not that bad. In comparison to Joe Blow, I'm a pretty good guy, you know. I helped my neighbor last week cut the lawn. I gave a cream pie to Mrs. Jones. I mean, hey, you know, pretty good, eh? Well, that's what we think. But is that what the Bible says? We all know it says something very different from that. We cannot earn our way into heaven in any, in any way, shape, or form, period. Another error that comes up is this. Is that's the danger that once we're saved, you can earn God's blessing and favor by your obedience. If you just live right, you do what God asks of you, then God's obligated to be really kind to you and give you all kinds of gifts throughout your life. And, and to grant you an easy, carefree life all the way into heaven. That's just not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says this, watch out for performance-based faith because according to Paul in Galatians 1, 8 to 9, it's anathema, it's to be accursed. There's one more area you gotta miss. And that's this, believing that some people don't deserve God's grace. Oh, no, no, they're too evil, they're too rotten, they're too terrible. Don't even share the gospel with them. No way, Jose, they earn, they deserve God's wrath, period. End of conversation. That's another danger we can fall into. Well, what does the Bible really teach us about grace? Well, we have it here. We have it here in this parable. That's the whole emphasis of Jesus in this, in, in the reason for telling this parable. One is surprising. It is surprising. I mean, look at Jesus' response to this grumbling guy. I don't know how you were responded, but this is a surprising response. Hey, he says, friend, uh, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Verse 13, 14, take your pay and go. I want to give the man who's hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do that? Bottom line, yeah, yeah. But you, you see, the whole point is that just as we react and frankly agree with the grumbling workers that this whole thing looks to be a great injustice and very unfair, that frankly is the whole point of this story that Jesus tells. He's pointing out that God's grace and salvation frankly is unfair. It is not what you and I deserve, not a bit. His grace is surprising because it's unmerited and unwarranted in spite of us and what we've done. No one is saved because they did something to deserve it. 
Nobody is saved by contributing something to their own salvation. Nobody gets a reward from Christ because somehow they achieved it. It isn't grace plus you and something else. No, no, it's grace alone in Christ alone by faith alone. Grace is free and unmerited from the living God to us. In fact, it's a favorite topic of Paul. Work your way through Paul's letters. A hundred times it comes up. Grace, grace, grace. Why? Because it's the theme in the entirety of the scriptures. From day one, God evidences that he's a God of tremendous grace that is surprising. Every time we blow it throughout the scriptures, what countered that? His grace, his grace, his grace. You see, whenever we think that somehow we can contribute to our salvation by our own morality or religion or respectability, frankly, we have corrupted the gospel of grace and we've turned the gospel of grace into no gospel at all. It doesn't matter whether you're five or 85. When you came to Christ, it's still grace. It doesn't matter whether you're the thief on the cross who came to Christ at the last hour or Timothy, who served Christ all of his life for decades. It's still grace. It doesn't matter if you have served God for many decades or just for an hour before he calls you home. It's still grace. It doesn't matter whether who you are or who you aren't, uh, or what you've done or haven't done. It's still grace. It doesn't matter if you're the worst of sinners or not. It's still grace. It's still grace. You know, and the greatest injustice of all is pointed out by the Lord Jesus in chapter 20 after he tells this parable. He then goes on to tell his disciples. He says in verse 18, the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. There's the greatest injustice of all. That is surprising that the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, would bear my sin and your sin in its totality and would subject himself to the hands of cruel men to be crucified in the place of guilty, undeserving sinners like us in order to secure our redemption. That's surprising. It's also sovereign. It's also sovereign. Text goes on. Jesus isn't done yet. He says further to this fella, he says, don't, verse 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? You see, absolutely it's true. That owner had the right to pay whatever he wanted and as much as he desired to whomever, to whomever he desired. He wasn't in, under obligation to do anything, but it, he chose in himself to give everybody a denarius. You know, I, I was confronted by this truth when I was a, a, just a little guy. I remember uh, we decided, a bunch of us and friends and myself, that we were gonna have a garage sale and all the proceeds were gonna go to a charity. And so we all went home and dug through our toy boxes and pulled out a whack of stuff and each of us had a table and we all set our own prices and we sold our stuff. End of the day, we, we were sitting around piling up the money, and one of the guys says, yeah, I'm gonna keep my money. I don't plan to give it to the charity. 
Well, I remember I was ready to bop them. I thought, hey, hold, hold the phone here. What are you doing? But then I realized, you know what? Bottom line, it's his stuff. He set the price. He sold it for what he wanted. He's got the right to do with it as he pleases. Who am I to tell him otherwise? And likewise, that's what Jesus is telling us. This owner was under no obligation to do what he did. And he's pointing out here in terms of the gospel and the work of redemption that God is absolutely sovereign. And he has the right to dispense his gifts in general and in redemption in whatever way he so decides. I mean, in redemption, it is God who initiates and causes and calls and regenerates, and it's him who completes the work of redemption. And in general, it is God who decides, according to Jesus in Matthew 5, 45, who has the right to cause his son to rise on the evil and the good and the rain to fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And so, too, the owner of the, of the vineyard had the right to decide who would work for him and what they would get in the end. It wasn't the worker's decision. It was the owner's decision, in the right, and he had the right to decide. You see, my life... And your testimony, my testimony and your testimony is exactly the same. It's Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 2 and 8. You know these verses real well. You could quote them, but this is our testimony. It will be now and throughout eternity. It says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no money can boast. Love this quote from John MacArthur. He says, sin, uh, sorry, just as sin is the great equalizer that causes every man to fall short of the glory of God, God's grace is the great equalizer that removes sin and makes every believer acceptable to him in Christ. God was never under any obligation to extend any grace to any of us at any point. He's not under any obligation to give us anything for that matter. Any blessings or gifts are all gifts from his hand to ours. We don't deserve anything from him. Frankly, what we do deserve is his wrath. Because that's what we've earned according to Romans 6 and 23. All have sinned. Well, that's Romans 3 and 23. Romans 6 and 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you've earned. So you want justice? Then it's to hell we go. See, God's grace is undeserved. It is sovereign. And it's in the way he dispenses it. It's also generous. Look at, go back to verse 15. Back to Matthew 20. I'm going to 15 now. And he says a little further down on the text, are you envious because I am generous? Well, there's the third aspect of his grace. Surprising, sovereign. Now he says it's generous. It's generous. In fact, he says, I'm not being unfair at all. I'm being very fair. And I'm being very generous. And again, you know, in the days of the Lord Jesus, the Jews really did believe that they were going to be first in the kingdom of heaven because not only were they God's chosen, but they were the descendants of Abraham. So in their minds, they were in. Automatic, advance to go, you know, we got it. And Jesus, of course, collapses that in a hurry. And in Matthew 21, 31, and 32, he says, oh, no, just a minute here, do you realize that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are ahead of you in the kingdom? That's what he says to the Jews. Point is this. 
God's gift of salvation is equally given and offered to both Jew and Gentile alike, isn't it? Regardless of who you are or what you've done, God offers you salvation that's found only in his son. As somebody has said correctly, we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. And we see the generosity of God's offer of salvation in this parable. I mean, five times, five times, the owner went to the gate and hired people to come in and to harvest his crop. Point is this, it's a picture of what God does in redemption. He continually offers grace and salvation to you and I and to anyone who receive it at every hour of the day. Regardless of who you are or what you've done, it's offered to all in Christ. That's the point of this story. And the fact that there obviously is a giant harvest is also a picture of the generosity of his grace. Many will come, not just a few. God isn't stingy with his grace, never has been. It's given in plenty. So here's the point. Don't grumble about who God extends it to. Don't be upset if God chooses to extend grace to somebody who you wouldn't. Don't be envious if God decides to bless somebody who hasn't worked as hard or as long as you have. Don't question God if he chooses to save the most unlikely sinner in planet Earth. Ever read the account of Jeffrey Dahmer? Remember him? Not a very nice guy. In fact, he committed some of the most gruesome and abhorrent murders that placed him in death row, taking the life of 17 young men. Hard to be very sympathetic with this kind of a fellow, isn't it? Well, what you may not realize is that while he was in prison, he was sent books and tracts about the gospel. And over time, he began to meet with a local pastor. And the remarkable truth is that God saved him. He testified to a, a local interviewer how he realized that he was an absolute sinner, accountable to God for every action and told the interviewer that he had come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed God and that the Lord Jesus was his Lord and Savior. He even was baptized while he was in prison. But a day came after chapel one day when another inmate attacked him and killed him. The reviews after that attack were, were something to read. Some believed that he should just simply, he should have just burned in hell. Others Others believe that the saving grace of God should never have been extended to him whatsoever. But I would suggest to you that we have no right to question the actions and decisions of a sovereign God. Rather, we should be grateful that God would extend his grace even to us. It should drive us to our knees. It should cause us to be very grateful for God's grace and mercy, and that we would live a life of rejoicing and offering ourselves as a living sacrifice for such mercy extended to us, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. That's how we should love our lives. You see, the concluding lesson here is simply this. As Jesus points out, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Christ actually unpacked this statement a number of times throughout the Gospels. And here's just one commentary on these words from Christ himself found in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12. Let me read these words to you. It's really a commentary on these words. Matthew 23 
And uh, I'm going to read 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The point is simply this. Jesus has been defining for us in Matthew chapter 20 in this parable the operating principle of God's kingdom, which is grace. And he's been defining what our reaction to God's grace should be as his servants. One word, humility. That's our response. It should humble us before such, such grace. In fact, humility is a characteristic of the true follower of Jesus, isn't it? Found all through the New Testament that reflects the heart and actions of Christ more than anything else. God's grace has saved us and rescued us and sustains us, and therefore our response must be humility towards such a God. John Stott writes, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. Nothing in history or the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place like Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size because the cross never inflates us, but rather it causes us to stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. You see, those who are going to be first in the eyes of God and last in the eyes of the world are those who recognize the wonder of God's grace found in the cross and who live and rely and serve in grateful dependence upon such grace. And those who are going to be last, and probably first, last in God's eyes, but first in the eyes of the world, are those who assume that God owes them because of their good deeds and their good standing among men. Listen, there will be many who are first in privilege and status in the eyes of men, who will, on the day of judgment, be last in the eyes of God. My dear friends, do not make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. Receive God's grace and mercy that is extended, that is extended to you this morning in and through the Lord Jesus. Do not neglect it or ignore it. And if you are in Christ this morning and you know his grace, and my friend, rest in it. Rest in it and humbly serve Christ every hour of every day in grateful dependence upon him until he comes. Amen. May our lives, <clears throat> as Hebrews 13, 15 encourages us, be a sacrifice of praise offered up to God continually for his surprising and sovereign and generous grace in our redemption. God bless you. Amen.